Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Tim Lilly, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Hey, it's good to be here. Tim, I guess we should start by uh, talking about how we know each other. You and I met back in 1993. Is that right? I would say it was... Right around there, 93, and you had just come out of EOBC. <laughs> EOBC, and somebody did like me, and they put me in charge of uh, the a and platoon uh, for a couple oh, of minutes. Yeah, I, I had... I, go ahead. I was just saying, and then they fortunately put me on the line uh, two years into that. Yeah, we, had some, we had some good times at the a platoon. I was a... Combat construction foreman for you. That's right. I forgot about that. I was was your construction foreman. Yeah, that that was a uh, an interesting bunch. You you either uh, loved or hated them, or and they either loved or hated uh, whoever was in a leadership position. Right. They they didn't react well to leadership. Typically not, especially (laughs) the typical. lieutenant that comes out of uh, school or some sort of military training that thinks they already know everything. Right. And then you get the guy that's been in the guard less than four years. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. But you and I really uh, got close when you were the readiness NCO in Bravo company. And I w- it, it was our platoon. You were the platoon sergeant. I was the PL. And uh, we, we spent, what, about a year prepping for uh, Fort Polk. Right. JRTC at Fort Polk. Yeah, that was... Uh, that was that was something we don't have to talk too much about that if you don't want to. Uh, that was good training. I had a great time. No, it was fantastic training. I I, I wouldn't complain about it at all. I, you have one thing to complain about. You were telling me a few weeks ago what happened the first day we went into the box. Oh, well, when we we did that night landing, we were going across the LZ, and I, I stepped in a gopher hole and put a stress fracture in my ankle. You literally broke your your ankle. I literally broke my ankle. And then you walked around on it for the next, what, two weeks? For the next two weeks. And, and it gets gooder than that. Uh, I was supposed to go to ANOC the week after we got back from Polk. So I came home, and I was training for the PT test, running on it every day. Oh. Yeah. Went out to uh, went out to Fort Leonard Wood for ANOC with that fractured ankle. And, and, uh, and you thought you had just sprained it, right? You didn't realize you had a stress fracture. Right. I thought I just sprained it. I mean, it hurt. Uh, but I did well in a PT test, which was a lesson for me. Never do well in PT test. But uh, <laughs> no, nah, all kidding aside, it, I, I did well. And I ended up in the A group for running every morning. Oh. And uh, the ankle lasted un- under that stress. The ankle lasted Almost halfway through, about three and a half week mark when it snapped. And tell a story of, of when it snapped. Uh, well, we were we were running, and we were going up this hill around a corner. Uh, it was still dark, and I thought I just stepped on a stick because it just cracked, and and the whole group heard it, and we thought I'd stepped on a stick, and I rolled off to the side of the road, and I thought I'd rolled my ankle at that point. And uh, so I made my way back to the gym 
and there wasn't anybody there. So I went ahead and caught a cab down to the hospital and had them look at my ankle. And that's when they x-rayed it, put me on a cast from the knee all the way to the toe and said I was headed home and I had a broken ankle. And, and uh, long story short, you ended up finishing ANOC. You convinced them that you needed to stay, right? I did. I, I asked them, I said, well, how do I stay here? And they said I, I needed uh, an orthopedic surgeon to approve it. So, and it was, it was a series of miracles, sir, how, how God worked, worked the whole situation. Cause I asked him where his office was and they said, told me where it was, but they said he doesn't come in till about nine o'clock. And this was six 30 quarter seven now. So I went there and I was just sitting in his office when he came in about seven o'clock, he'd come in early that morning. Hmm. And I asked me what I was doing there, and I told him what had happened. And he said, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, figure out a way for me to stay. They just kind of looked at me and said, come on in. And uh, he had a he had a good program. He said it was going to hurt, and he wasn't lying. It, it hurt. But uh, he basically cut the cast off, gave me some a walking splint system and some pain pills, and said, go get a big pair of boots and – lace them up. So I gimped around in tennis shoes for a couple of days till I could get to the thrift store. And I bought a, I think they were like size 13 combat boots. <laughs> and and uh, I just set one of them on the shelf. And I, I, and every morning after that, the guys would hear me getting dressed because I had to lay on my back and put this boot up in the air and take a deep breath and then just shove my foot into it. Mm. I, I've, I've got a, I've got a couple questions. Uh, well, I actually have more than a couple. So when, when you busted, when it snapped, when it sounded like you stepped on a, a, a twig or a branch, weren't you in excruciating pain or were you, was your body already conditioned to not feel that? I don't remember feeling any pain at that point. Like I say, I thought I'd rolled my ankle. It did hurt. Uh, obviously couldn't run anymore. So it, it hurt. I, I limped back, walking back. Yeah, that's that's uh crazy. And and you were were you the only National Guard guy there? Uh, no, there were a couple other guys there, AGR guys. Because you know, only AGRs could go there. Um, it was the active duty ANOC at Fort Leonardwood. So there were a couple of other AGR guys there. But, uh, but the regular the regular army guys looked at you guys a little bit differently coming from the uh, guard, right? They did, but uh, it was misplaced. They, they yeah. learned pretty quickly that uh, it, it's, it's a completely different. And I think that as a readiness NCO going to ANOC, I had an advantage over the regular soldiers. Uh, your, your standard staff sergeant in the army, he's, he's run a squad. And that's what he knows. Um, but for an AGR readiness NCO, he, he's run a, a squad, a platoon, depending on his rank. I was I was in E7 at that time. Well, actually, I'm sorry. I was still a staff sergeant. Um, so I had more experience being a first sergeant, help, helping the first sergeant throughout the month, helping the commander throughout the month, uh, Collateral duty as safety officer, physical security officer, um, you name it. So we had a much broader exposure to the Army experience than the active duty staff sergeants and 
Sergeant First Classes did. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I describe readiness NCOs, and, and I work with a bunch of them, you were definitely in my top 10%. Um, you, you guys did everything besides supply 28 days out of a 30 or 31 day month. We did. We did. And uh, actually, some of us got to do supply too. <laughs> we, we won't dive into that. Yeah, when up in Warrington, I had I had to pull the supply sergeant route for about ninety days when I was between supply sergeants. Whew, that can't be fun. That was not fun at all. That that was probably the most scary because you signed for the supply room and all the weapons. <laughs> no, I, I'm telling you, I I, I got to be uh, commander in a couple different units, and my worst two days of command was taking inventory and signing for all that stuff, and then. Hoping that it was all still there when I left command. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and seldom is it always all there, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. So, the, but no, we'll just call it the art, the art of uh, supply management. It, it is an art for sure. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. So, Tim, where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in southern West Virginia. Uh, it's in Summers County. Name of the town is Hinton. Uh, you and I were talking a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I've been to Southern West Virginia. You corrected me on the name of the counties down there. But our unit out of Fredericksburg ended up going down there to help uh, the citizens of Southern West Virginia who had experienced what I can only describe as severe flooding uh, in the middle of the night. Like they had no warning or very little warning. Um, and I, I've never seen in-person devastation like that. Did you experience that at any point? When you live there growing up? I'm sure, I'm not sure what year you went, sir, but I think if memory serves me, you fell in behind us. I think the 276 oh, was, that's right. was the first Virginia guard unit in West Virginia for those floods. And that was around 2000, 2001, I want to say. It was 2001 because I left a little bit early because my son was about to be born. Right. Yeah, it and, was uh, one. And that was, that was uh, I mean, growing up in West Virginia, I can remember, you know, we always watched the creeks rise because, you know, we all had a creek either in the front yard or the backyard. And, uh, but that was the most devastation I had seen from a flood was when we went into McDowell County. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was like a bomb went off. It was. And, uh, you know, we were just clearing roads and we were just pushing the debris. And I hate to say it because, you know, describe it as debris, but because it, it, it was people's lives. We were just pushing them to the side of the road. And I'm sure by the time you guys showed up, the, the debris, you were going through a ditch down the road when you went down Route 52. It, it looked like a ditch in a lot of places because we had just piled the, the debris up so high on either side. Yeah, I think we were a day or two behind y'all. And by the time we got there, they said, hey, just just find a holler where there's been devastation, where there were places where they resided in these hollers and and do whatever you can to to, uh, to help them out. And so we were literally taking direction from whoever the senior per senior citizen was in, in that location. Right. And and that's that's what we would we had established when we went in, we cleared the main route and established a lodgement there at the high school. Yeah. And uh, then after that, we began to push 
squads and uh, elements out to the various little communities up to Hollis. And yeah, I uh, I have a very distinct image that I'll never forget. We we pulled into this holler, and I'm saying holler. How do you say it? Holler is good. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. close. I'm, I'm in the I'm in the region. I, I'm I think. Yeah, holler is fine. Yeah, and uh, there was a guy sitting on uh, the cinder block foundation of what used to be his house, and, and I walked up to him. He was. It looked like he had the thousand yard stare going like he whatever he had experienced the previous couple of days. He just didn't know what to make of it. And I asked him where his house was. And he said, I'm about a mile away from here. And so that little creek had, had become like a raging river and moved homes half a mile, mile away. It's unbelievable. It was. It was. I was talking to people who uh, who had been in church that night when it came. And they went out the back of the church and straight up the mountain. And that they said the water was 20, 25 foot deep when it went past them. And uh, they were just hanging on to the trees on the side of the mountain. It, it's unbelievable. that I, I've never been in a, something that's that scary, I don't think. And, and I mean, I've lived a bit of life, but not, nothing like that. I couldn't imagine it. Yeah. yeah. But I, the good news is I, I think we... We did our part to help them out. The Red Cross, I think, was pretty pretty big there. I don't know if there were other entities there, but uh, I, I felt proud to be a guardsman helping those folks out. I did, out too. Uh, the, right, we saw the Red Cross. The Salvation Army was there. And we were actually relieved by the South Carolina National Guard. Mm. They came in and did their AT there. Yeah, I, I think there were at least five states that uh, tried to do their part. Yeah, but uh, no, that was that was something else for sure. Yeah. All right. So, what was it like growing up in West Virginia? You know, I didn't know how great it was. I mean, we never knew we were poor because we always had a roof and we always had food. But uh, it was great. It really was. We we were close. It was a small town. We knew everybody. Our families were close by. And uh, I just basically played outside all the time. I mean, it, mom would open the door after breakfast and kick us kids out. And we just had to be on the dark. And we didn't have street, like, street lights to tell us when, you know. <laughs> we literally, when it got dark, we would come home. Yeah. So, yeah, breakfast to uh, sun, sundown. Right, right. And, uh I can remember after after I grew up and I, I was we were talking one day and she I was telling her how far I'd travel on some of those days, and I, I think I, I saw concern come across her eyes because <laughs> we would sometimes be miles from home. Parents, uh, your parents' generation, my parents' generation, ignorance was absolutely bliss when it came <laughs> to the kids. That's right. <laughs> you know, we we had, but it was good, you know. Grew up in a small town. I, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah, and being around a lot of families, uh, pretty important. You take it for granted as you're growing up, and when you look back at it, you, you realize you were very fortunate. That's right. Uh, when you were in, like, middle school, high school kind of age, I guess, or maybe it was junior high and, and high school, uh, how would I have thought of you? Were you an athlete? Were you academically inclined? All the musical? What were you doing, like, when you were 15, 16, 17? 
Uh, I, I would have to describe myself as my counselors and teachers would describe me, which would be a rebellious underachiever. <laughs> but Tim, I've, I've known you since the early 90s. You're a very bright, highly capable guy. Why were you like that as a teenager? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'm not going to blame my parents for anything because you can't blame your parents after you leave home for anything that's happened to you. But growing up in a small town, uh, my dad worked for the railroad. And Hinton was a railroad town that had been built by the railroad for the express purpose of supporting the railroad hub there so that they could haul the coal down to New River Gorge. Well, the summer of seventh grade, I went through seventh grade there, and then dad got transferred to Huntington. Okay. Which is a home of Marshall University. It was a big city by any standard, certainly a big city by West Virginia standards. And so we were moved down there that summer. I started junior high there, didn't know anybody, you know, and, and these kids had pretty much been together since kindergarten. You know, and so I have a lot of empathy now for military kids that get transferred every couple of three years, how, how tough that is. And with, I, I can say I didn't fit in, which made me rebellious. Um, I'd always been kind of an underachiever is what the teachers told me. And why? I don't know. It, it all changed later in life. But uh, no, you probably wouldn't have liked me. If you'd have met me 15 through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm reminded all the time being the, the father of a, uh, well, he's a young man now, but the, the male brain doesn't fully form until the mid twenties. And so I, I imagine uh, you not knowing anybody uh, moving as, as a young teenager combined with your brain, not being fully formed led to you maybe underachieving and, uh, and the rest of it. Yeah. Right. And I think when you feel like a misfit, you kind of fall in with the other misfits. And when you get a group of misfits together, you know, anything can happen and most of it not good. Most of it not good, but some of it I'm sure was fun. <laughs> I would say all of it was fun. Yeah. I'm not saying I didn't have fun. I'm just saying I didn't uh, prescribe to society's rules. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that's a good thing too. Yeah. All right, so uh, when did the possibility of joining the United States Navy happen for you? Well, um, I had I was in Marshall University. The, the high school was so eager to get rid of me that they let me take dual enrollment classes at Marshall. And uh, back in those days, dual enrollment, the, the college didn't come to you. You actually went to college. And uh, so I would go to... My senior year, I was in high school in the morning, and then in the afternoon, I would transition to my freshman classes at Marshall. Tim, that doesn't sound like underachieving. Well, I could have done better. <laughs> I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't classically doing well. But, uh, no, I just dissatisfied. You know, you, ever, you just feel restless. So over Christmas break, when I was looking at, am I going to go back to school in January? And uh, my dad and I had had a fallout over tuition and whose responsibility it was to pay for tuition. And 
And uh, so I found myself sitting on the street corner there at the curb in front of the recruiting station one morning. And uh, you know how the, the armed forces recruiting stations are kind of like a mall. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's an outer door and then you walk into a lobby and then there's these four little office doors. Well, I'm just sitting there with a cigarette and a cup of coffee and uh Navy guy walks up, says, hey, can I help you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking for something new. And he, big old cheesy grin, he said, come on in. <laughs> and you're, that's you're, always, you're just e- easiest recruiting scene in months. I'll tell you what, I was. I was just like his Christmas present. And uh, he opened the outer door, and as we went in, and as he was opening the inner door, the Marine recruiter came in right behind him. So that's that's how I ended up in the Navy. The, the Navy guy was first. Yeah, because otherwise you had no connection to the Navy, right? Well, my dad was had been Navy. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. My dad was Navy. Uh, I had one uncle that was Navy during World War II, but uh, that was it. Yeah, it's it's still a lineage, right? Right, right. It was. But uh, so the Navy guy took me in, gave me some tests, and uh, and again, and again, you know, you because here I am. I'm just looking for a little bit of adventure, maybe a change from Huntington, and uh, so he said, "What do you want to do?" And at the time. I had some experience working as an electrician. I spent the summers working as an electrician's helper. And so I said, well, how about the CBs? But they were full from Vietnam. So he said, let's take some, let's do the ASVAB and see where you fall in. And uh, so I did fairly well on the ASVAB. And he steered me toward the advanced electronics program. Which, which meant that I, I hadn't picked a rating, so I, I just knew that I was in advanced electronics. And uh, that was a six-year obligation he, he wrote me up for and to go into an advanced electronics field. So I, I left Huntington that January, right after Christmas. Was, that, was the idea that you were going to do some time in the Navy and then have that apply to civilian life and – you, you go from there or was it, Hey, I just need to be somewhere else other than Huntington. Yeah. I was just looking for a way out. Yeah. Just to change. I didn't have at that time. I didn't have career aspirations and uh, I wasn't looking to be educated for a future job. So that's why I say it was, it was definitely the Lord working ahead in my life because if I'd had my choice, I'd have been an able-bodied seaman scraping paint on some ship tied to a pier somewhere. You'd have been just fine with that, huh? I thought, yes. <laughs> it, it worked out a lot better the way it worked out. But uh, so I went to I went to Great Lakes, basic training, went through uh, basic electricity and electronics. And then when it came time to pick your rating, they had this big chart on the wall in the barracks. And, you know, all the advanced electronics – fields are highlighted. So I'm going down through them. And again, electronic warfare just was another blessing because they had the coolest rating badge. <laughs> these little these little neutrons with a lightning bolt, but I tried to get the aviation electronic warfare because they had the EW symbol with wings. 
and you got to ride in planes and helicopters. But uh, that was full, so I ended up in the fleet, uh, going to Pensacola, Florida, for a year of school, and uh, be, being in electronic warfare tech board warships. So, so wait a minute. Your your decision was most heavily influenced, or at least your preferences were most heavily influenced by the badge. <laughs> yeah, it was man. It looked like a Metallica album cover. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, to be 18, 19 again. Oh, man. Right. Yeah. The, 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 how we think. You're right. The brain wasn't fully formed. Yeah, no doubt. So, so did you get to see the world in the Navy? Because you were active Navy for about 10 years, right? 10 years. Uh, sailed from the East Coast and the West Coast. And I've, I've seen pretty much the world. I mean, there are bits and pieces. I've got 28 countries. So there are some some big pieces, but I sailed from San Diego westward to Africa. I've circumnavigated South America. I've sailed from the East Coast eastward to Africa. Um, never made it into the Mediterranean, and um, there's or anything like that. But when you've uh left San Diego to go to Africa, did you come around the tip of South America or did you keep going west? Actually, we went north. Uh, I, yeah, we, we left San Diego and we steamed north up to uh, Alaska. And then we followed the Aleutians into the Sea of Okosk, uh, down into the Sea of Japan, made some port calls along the way, got a globe. I'm looking at one right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, made some port calls around Japan, the Philippines. Then we went through the Straits of Malacca, past Singapore, into the Indian Ocean. And then we moved down to Mabasa, Kenya. And then from there, we made our way back. So how many ports did you hit, roughly? I'd have to do some math. Um uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, maybe three in Japan, Guam, Mombasa. Did I miss one? All right. Without getting yourself in any trouble, uh, what were the port calls like? Uh, Port calls are always great. (laughs) Port calls were always great. I I was still, even even in the Navy, I was a little bit rebellious. There there was a period... uh, from age 15, age 25, which I refer to as the lost decade. Um, I, I was pretty rambunctious. So some of the poor calls were pretty rowdy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can, can you believe that the Navy just allows sailors <laughs> to, how, how long would the port calls last typically? As it depend. Uh, sometimes a couple of days, five days, depending on what you were doing. Like uh, when we were in Guam, we spent almost a month in Guam. They have a shipyard facility there. So we pulled into Guam and did a little, uh, did a maintenance up, upkeep on the ship. So we were yeah, there for a while. There's not a lot on Guam, right? Uh, yeah, there actually is. Guam's a pretty, it's a Pacific paradise. Okay. There's a Air Force base at the north end of the island, a Navy base at the southern end, a road from main gate to main gate, 
and then the Marines are all from one of the sides. So the, the Army was the only uh, branch smart enough not to go to Guam, is what you're saying? No, I'm sure they were there. We just didn't see them. <laughs> they were somewhere. I mean, Guam is uh, nicely located if you're trying to have uh, international influence. It is. And it's a great duty station if you if you like to fish and swim and just be outside. Speaking of uh, fishing, did you grow up hunting and fishing? I did. I did. Tell, tell, uh, tell me about that because I, I didn't grow up hunting. and fish. I did a little bit of fishing, no hunting, uh, because my dad didn't. But I'm, I'm guessing your, your dad and maybe some uncles and older family members hunted and fished. Yeah, they did a lot more fishing than they did hunting. Uh, we didn't have a lot of – the deer had been pretty much killed at that time in southern West Virginia. Deer were really rare if you saw one. Mm. Uh, but we grew right up, up right on the banks of the New River. So there was a lot of fishing going on, a lot of smallmouth fishing, uh, musky, and catfish. And did so you typically – go ahead. It was just something we did all the time, you know. Just different fishing, different times of the year. Did you uh, eat what you caught most of the time? We did, <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah, that was. That's why there weren't any deer. There was no such thing as catch, catch and release in those days. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I imagine nobody cared. Well, everybody's hungry, so if you caught it, you ate it. No, I get it. Yeah, hunger's a powerful force. It is. So. Yeah, it was just subsistence hunting, fishing. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, all right, so back to the Navy. Uh, what, what What is your most memorable uh, story from the Navy or proudest moment from the Navy or both? And maybe it's the same same story. Yeah, there, well, there's a lot of good moments. Um, probably I, I caught a Russian submarine one time. Say more. Yeah. In, in those days, you know, it was the Soviet Union in those days, and we were we were playing cat and mouse during the Cold War. And uh, we were actually escorting. I was assigned to the USS George Phillip, yeah, FFG-12. And we were escorting the Enterprise aircraft carrier. And so we were out doing our picket duty and picked up a radar signal for a Soviet submarine. And I only only caught it on two passes, you know, because radars rotate and when the signal comes around, you can pick it up. But uh, I had a high level of confidence of what it was and I reported it. There, there were no submarines known to be in the area. And so it, it was a risk, but my chain of command supported me. And they sent us out on the bearing to try to locate it. Mm. And sure enough, we found it, a broken Soviet submarine floating on the water. And it was trying to link up with its repair ship. So it was only using a radar minimally to try to find a repair ship. And here we come steaming over the horizon. And, of course, as soon as we saw it and reported it, all the, all the cool guys from the carrier flew over and took credit. But uh, yeah, no. but the but the ship and the, the captain and skipper and you know it rolled down to me. We all got a little attaboy for that one. Well, so I mean, you you detect a Soviet sub, you you believe it's a Soviet sub. How much of that is 
you as a person deducing what it is versus the equipment helping you figure it out? It was about 50-50. The equipment obviously detected the signal and did a preliminary analysis on it, but the, the, the precise analysis and the final determinations made by the operator. That's pretty cool. How long did you do that? What, electronic warfare? Yeah, with the whole time? I did, yeah, that was my rate. I did that for 10 years. Uh, I, had to, I had a perfect Navy career. Out of my 10 years, I spent five years at sea and five years at Pensacola. Not a I bad game. No, I did a year of school. Uh, then I went to the West Coast and spent three years in the fleet. Then I went back to Pensacola for a year of school, went to the East Coast, spent two years in the fleet. And then I went back to Pensacola and my final tour as an instructor for three years. I mean, that, that's that's hard to beat. And you are probably one of a, well, I say a handful. Certainly you're the only person I know that did 10 years active uh, Navy and then more than 10 in the Army National Guard, which for all intents and purposes is is the Army. And uh, you, you can attest to how well-located Navy bases are versus Army posts. Right, right. I don't think you could compare Virginia Beach to Fort Bragg and uh, get anybody to, to voluntarily go to Fort Bragg. <laughs> All right, so this will be fun. What's your favorite favorite Navy base? Oh, Pensacola. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you went there three different times. Right, Maybe right. Four. Yeah, yeah I, I lived there for five years. Yeah, three different times. That's a, that's a pretty sweet deal. Uh, what's, what's your uh, favorite Army post? <laughs> if there's such a thing. Uh, you want me to say Fort Pickett, don't you? <laughs> I, I, I definitely don't want you to say Fort Polk because that would be a lie. I had fun of Fort Polk. I had fun of Fort Chaffee, too. Uh, oh, man, it would have to – I would have to say Fort AP Hill. Yeah, I mean, you and I spent a lot of time there, that's for sure. Did you ever get a chance to go out to Schofield Barracks or anything? I drove by it when Cindy and I went to Hawaii. Yeah, uh, I spent two weeks at Schofield, and only the Army can find the worst part of Oahu and build <laughs> Army post there. It's like red clay and lava rock, right? Yeah, and you, you, don't, you don't really have a sense of where you are. It's just kind of just nondescript. I mean, there's... There's a mountain range. You can see that in the distance, but it, uh, it was just a couldn't believe it. There's stories I could tell, but we're not here to talk about my my stories. No, uh, we, I looked at it when you know when you go to when you go to Hawaii on an anniversary trip, you do the obligatory drive around the island one day, and we were, we were driving up and you know got Schofield on the left and got Dole Plantation on the right, and I'm like. The Dole people were smarter than the Army people. They obviously sold all the non-productive land to the U.S. government. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it's the Army was just trying to find the cheapest, largest space they possibly could wherever they were looking. That probably is. Yeah. APL was your favorite, huh? Is it just because you spent so much time there and you have some familiarity? Right, right. And it's, it's close to home. I mean, yeah. it's not too far from the porch right now. But uh, it also reminds me of West Virginia. People think um, AP Hill is not flat. No, it's definitely not. 
and uh, there there are some there are a lot of places that remind me of home, and uh, obviously I think I've spent more time there since I left the army than I did before. Although it, it'd be close because I hunt and fish over there all the time. Yeah, and uh, I can just sit up in a tree and just imagine being back home. Uh, all right, let's go back to the Navy. Uh, you did ten. A lot of people who do ten years active duty, uh, regardless of the branch are thinking, well, I did, I've already done one 10. I could do a second 10. And, and a lot of guys say, I'm going to do 20. W what happened with you in the Navy around the 10 year mark? Well, at, at this point I'd gotten over the underachieving portion of my life. So I, I was doing well. I, I punched all the tickets I needed to, to have a successful back end Navy career, but I'd also gotten married and my first, my first son had been born. He was born in August and I was due to reenlist in December. And the detailer was a friend of mine. And he's like, I can have any, my pick of any ship on his list. And, uh, but he advised me that if I wanted to make a master chief, I needed to pick an aircraft carrier or a battleship. And out of those two, I would have easily chosen the battleship. But they spent a lot of time at sea, and I just I struggled with it, and I just couldn't I just couldn't imagine dropping a, a young wife and a newborn baby on the on a pier in Norfolk, and going out to sea for nine months. So I decided to try another career. Yeah, there are a lot of folks in the Navy that make that decision and get out around the same time you did. Uh, and some stay in. And frankly, I don't know how the ones that stay in do it. I, I don't either, because even at our point, all my friends were on second, third wives. And uh, so every time we get together down at the schoolhouse and all the instructors and their wives, and they, they were they were amazed that we, we had just gotten married. We got married late in life, but that we were each other's first husband and wife because everybody else was blended and on multiple weddings. So it, it was, it's a Navy life for sure. Yeah. So what was the idea when, when you finally decided you were going to take your, uh, your wife and your, your newborn somewhere else? Where, where were you headed? Well, I wanted to stay in Pensacola, mm. but uh, Cindy wanted to move back closer to home, closer to family. So when, we had done a lot of work supporting the electronic warfare people at Dahlgren because at the schoolhouse, we had every EW system that was in the fleet. And I mean, because we trained technicians. So our systems were pristine. They were groomed every day. So anytime there was a problem or something that needed to be solved from Dahlgren, they would send their, their techs and their engineers would come down and use our lab. And we would assist them. So I made some contacts. So I was offered a job with a contractor at Dahlgren to come up and do electronic warfare, you know, support the uh, development of engineering change proposals, uh, software refinement, stuff like that, hardware, software enhancements. And it was close to home. And so we took that job and we moved up here. We actually picked Ladysmith. I can remember when we did it, we didn't know where we wanted to live, but we were looking at a map 
the paper map of Virginia and where Dahlgren was. And we picked the Ladysmith because it was equidistant between D.C., Richmond, and Dahlgren. And I, I thought I could always find a job between one of those three places. And, and it was a cool name, Ladysmith, Virginia. Sorry, is Cindy from Virginia or West Virginia? She's from West Virginia. Okay. Yeah. And so, so the, the, the DC Richmond corridor with a little jaunt over to Dahlgren, that, that was close enough to home for both of y'all. Right. Right. We could, you know, I could be in, we can be in West Virginia in four hours from here. So it was close enough without being too close. So how long did you do the, the gig at Dahlgren? Well, I, I, almost three years, but I was also a traditional guardsman too. And uh, because I, you know, I had invested 10 years, so I wanted to do something. So I, obviously I called the Navy first. They didn't have any billets in the Navy reserve. Uh, the best they could do for me was I could drive to Norfolk, drill without pay. They would, they, <laughs> they would double slot me. I would come down. They would feed me and give me a place to sleep on a ship, but I would be double slotted. And then when that guy died or retired, I could have his slot. Uh, so I called the Marines and they said they would love to have me and I could join unit at Quantico, but I had to go to Paris Island for 16 weeks. So, yeah. And you were already in your late twenties at this point, right? Right. right. I was 29 maybe. Yeah. And, uh, so I called national guard and joined the national guard there in Fredericksburg. When did you know the National Guard existed? I mean, we always knew there was a National Guard. Uh, I mean, we had National Guard in West Virginia, but as a as a viable option to serve, probably about a week after the Marines told me I had to go to Paris Island. <laughs> <laughs> and then Fredericksburg was just a close enough unit. For you? Oh yeah, we were living actually living in Fredericksburg at the time. We hadn't wow. uh, we hadn't found a house in Ladysmith, so we were renting up in uh, Stafford County. What what year was this when you joined the, the guard there in Fredericksburg? Uh, well, the recruiter, and I won't I won't say Sergeant Weston's name. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I started talking to him in December because I knew if I didn't want to lose anything, I had to transition rather rapidly. But uh, he pushed me off till after the holidays, and I realized later after I started working with him, he was probably just moving me into a next quarter where he didn't hadn't met his quota yet. He'd already met his quota for that fourth quarter, so so I ended up joining and signing in March of '89. Okay. Yeah, he yeah. he definitely made his fourth quarter quota. It's no question. <laughs> That's what I thought. Otherwise, he'd have shoved me in quick. And, and so you, you signed on with the guard to be a combat engineer? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know what it was. I had no idea. I just signed on the guard. I, I thought I would just, you know, do one weekend a month, get free hunting clothes, and uh, build toward a retirement at some point. <laughs> you were going to get a, a effectively an end-day retirement with 10 years active duty in the Navy. That You would have had a lot of points, uh, but you – and I imagine you enjoyed your M-Day experience. 
I did. I did. It was, it was really good because I was, I was working as a systems uh, engineering tech out of Dahlgren. And so it was a huge contrast to what I was doing on a, a work. And uh, my very first drill, I don't know if you remember Sergeant Major Heron. Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> he was my readiness NCO. They assigned me to Charlie Company. And uh, very first drill, I mean, he took me out. He, We were blowing demo on my first drill. And, uh, it, yeah, he was just so personal. And he made a huge impact on me. And so I actually, you know, you look forward to going to drill. I mean, in those days, we were the – we set the standard for the entire division back in the 90s. So all of our training was hard, fast, realistic. I mean, we were we were flying, blowing, or shooting every single weekend. So, Oh, it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I loved every minute of it. Yeah, Sergeant Major Heron, I, I could be around him – for 10 hours a day, every day for a long time. I, I love being around Sammy. Yeah, he's a lot of fun, man. He really is. And uh, I enjoyed it. He had a huge impact on me. And uh, so. Well, he, he, he's smart as a whip, got a great sense of humor, and he's he's skinny. I would describe him as wiry or skinny, but he's strong. He was so strong. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, he was, he had a grip that would just crush your head. <laughs> he would he would walk up to me. We'd be in some chow line, and he I was a first lieutenant at the time. He goes, "Hey, sir, how many times you been promoted?" I said once, and he goes, "I've been promoted seven times." He was an E eight at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds man. like you. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. So when you and I were in Bravo Company together, we were doing that that prep uh, for JRTC, and you're right. We we would get there early on a Saturday morning or, or late afternoon on a Friday. And it was nonstop. It was, it, it was awesome. But when we would go nonstop, we, we maybe sleep an hour or two overnight Saturday. And uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah. sometimes we didn't. And I, I distinctly remember, uh, and I, and I give you this credit, whether you want it or not. And this is not a positive thing for me. I was falling asleep about zero three and you and I were standing next to a tree or leaning against a tree or something. And you said, sir, you got to wake up. And I said, uh, I'm trying to stay up. Sorry, Lily, but man, I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> I had a long work at my civilian job and who I'm just beat. And you said, well, stick this in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and it was red man. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I had a taste for red man for a long time. And then I transitioned to dip. And fortunately for me, I, I quit several years ago, but, uh, that's how it started. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It's, it, it's impossible to fall asleep with that stuff in your mouth. That's what I used to think. Wait yeah. a minute. You, you fall asleep with it in your mouth. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh man. That, that's a uh, level of comfort with that, that I, I never experienced. Yeah. Yeah. But we had fun. I demo ranges were my favorite. Um, I, I couldn't believe I was getting paid to do that. I mean, right. it was awesome. Yeah, I, I can remember the, the very first demo range I was on with Sergeant Major Heron, and we had we had gone down across this long bottom out in uh, I'm trying to think of the range CA twenty five. 
and we'd gone across and we were blowing an abatee on the other side of the creek. Oh, hold, so, hold on, you can't, you, for our non uh, military folks, describe what an abatee is. Uh, an abatee is where you, you drop the trees so that they form it, they, they interlock as they come down in sequence and they form an interlocking barrier. And you, you use it to, to block a road or, uh, in this case, we were just blocking a cut in the hillside. But uh, you, you block an avenue of approach with just this massive tangle of fallen trees. And if, if they bring a dozer in and try to push you against it, it just gets tighter. Uh, it, it's just nasty. You have to cut them or blow them to clear them. But uh, it, it's really an effective use of a limited amount of explosives to create a, an, an imposing obstacle for the enemy to try to get through or around. Yeah, go, go ahead. I, I interrupted your story. So you were headed through the bottom. Yes. Yeah, so, so we went over there and we, we just placed charges on probably 50 trees. <laughs> and they were all daisy chained together. And it was beautiful. And when we got to the end of the deck cord, we, we had to spool. Now, mind you, this was my first drill with the National Guard. And we had this the spool that the deck cord came off of. And we're like, and I had this bright idea. Maybe I was influenced, but we wanted to see how far we could launch it. And we also thought it'd be a good visual for uh, when we got back to the other side of the valley before we blew it. So we duct taped it to the tree. And then we popped the charges and we go across, you know, and we got our watches and we get up on the other side and, we're sitting there and we're looking at our watches and Sergeant Major Heron goes, where's my spool? And I'm like, what? You got 45 seconds, 44, you know, we're doing a countdown. Oh. He's like, the spool that the deck cord was on, where's it at? And I'm like, you can't see it. It's right there. It's that big brown spot on that pine tree. <laughs> and he got so mad. And I had no idea why I got mad until I became AGR. Because, you know, we blew right on time and his spool was gone. But in order to clear the ASP, you have to turn all your residue in. Yep. That that empty spool was indicative that you'd expended all the deck cord. And uh, he cleared the ASP. I don't know where he got a spool, but uh, <laughs> it was the one he had. But the look on his face when I said, it's right there. And I pointed it out to him. And, and he wasn't going out there to get it. No, no. He, he did not go after it. Nah, it was, uh, that was the start of a beautiful friendship. Yeah, I uh, I haven't talked to him in a long time. I'd love to reconnect with Sammy. Uh, have you ever been on a demo range where you had to clear a misfire? Yeah. Uh, is, is that the most stressed that you've ever been in your life? It was for me. I, yeah. I, I, I would say, yeah. I mean... Honestly, you know, I, I, I've got strong faith, but I, I, we literally prayed before we walked down range on this one. This one, I mean, you know, being a combat engineer, nobody's going to clear your misfires for you. Nope. Uh, so we, and again, this involved timber charges at AP Hill. We had wired them. We, we'd put them in. And it was not electric, so when I say wired, I, we just placed them and we'd, we'd run our deck cord. And 
we popped the charges. We went back and they didn't go. You know, that's the worst feeling ever when you're you're on your countdown and then it doesn't go. So you give it your safety time. And it doesn't go. So we had to declare a misfire, but thunderstorms were rolling in. And uh, they put us on a lightning hold. So now we have thunderstorms. We have lightning. We've got a whole road that was lined with trees on either side that are that are live. They've got C4 tape to them. They've got everything in place, but they just didn't go. And uh, so we sat there, and they'd give us a clearance, and we'd start out, and then they would shut us down and pull us back while these thunderstorms were rolling. And it was about midnight when we had a, a window where we could go down and, and try to clear the shot. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember the lieutenant's name that went with me. Uh, I don't I don't like to use other people's names here, but I had a lieutenant and then I had another sergeant who both traditional soldiers who had actually one was a range OIC. The other was a range safety. And I had just kind of gotten pulled into this. I hadn't even seen him. It wasn't my shot. I was there. And so we go down range, and, and I can remember that there were still flashes of lightning in the distance, but they were far enough away from us that we, we felt we had some time. And it was eerie because everything was still – rain was coming down and lightning was flashing. You'd see these trees, and you'd see that C4 sticking there. And uh, so we, we, we found a break. We repaired it. But we only had – one fuse igniter left and uh th this one might get me in trouble sir we might have to edit this one. But, uh, well t tell me the parts that you're, you're not worried about <laughs> we we only had one fuse igniter left so i cut a chunk of c4 i, I trimmed all the deck because the deck cord had been laying in the rain and time fuse everything so i trimmed the time fuse back i took this chunk of c4 molded around the end of the time fuse. And then I had them pull the 1M60 that they had. And then I'd used the Zippo lighter and ignited the C4 on the end of the time fuse. And I mean, there, there was some serious pucker uh, from the Lieutenant and the other Sergeant when they saw me put that Zippo up to the C4 and set it on fire. But we backed off and uh, the blue, both of I don't either the primary or the secondary, but either way, we cleared that shot that night. And uh, when we went back out in the next the next morning <laughs> in the daylight, there was still some C4 that hadn't hadn't detonated, but we disposed of that properly in accordance with. And uh, yeah, that was probably the most puckered up I'd been. Yeah, I mean, you, <laughs> I've never done this, but you could you could take a hammer to C4 and it's not going to do anything. You, like you just described, you can uh, set C4 on fire and just that alone, it's not going to do anything. But if you do both. Right. Yeah. Don't, yeah. Don't set it on fire and try to put it out with a hammer. <laughs> that would yeah, be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I, I won't tell my, my misfire story, but I, I will agree that the pucker factor was uh, unbelievable. Whoo. 
Yeah, I remember that that time almost killed you with a dozer at uh, at AP Hill. Do you do you remember? I I, no, tell me more. We were we were down on Paint Can Alley, okay. and I was I was working to get my dozer license. This was when I was your construction foreman, and you were the the salt and barrier platoon leader. And uh, I'm I'm sitting there. You're standing there talking to me, and I. I'm trying to learn how to maneuver around on a dozer and you moved and I didn't see you move. And I moved the dozer and the blade just whisked by your head. <laughs> and I was, I mean, obviously it didn't impact you, but I still remember it to this day. Cause I thought I, I thought for sure I'd kill you. I was oh, going to lose man. my job. <laughs> I, I, I blissfully do not remember that. Uh, did we talk about it afterwards? Yeah, but I think we were overcome with the fact that we started turning up unexploded mortar rounds. And we had to call the that time the EOD did come down from Quantico and that's, collect that's them all. Right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have I have stories about two years of that platoon that I still can't talk about. Yeah. Yeah, I think that overshadowed any near miss I had with the dozer blade on your head. Uh pro- probably would have just knocked me out. Yeah, yeah. You'd have gone with it. <laughs> but my uh, my head's pretty soft too, so I'm, I'm sure it wouldn't have done any real damage. Cool. Uh, all right, so you did about what eleven in the guard, a- AGR plus some M day time. Uh right. Yeah. Well, it all totaled out. I want to say they gave me credit for maybe twelve. Okay. Active and when once the M day time rolled in. Yeah. Gotcha. So so you did a full twenty and. You were in your, what, early 40s? Early 40s when I retired, right. And so what was the idea? You, you'd get some <clears throat> retirement pay right away and then go do whatever you, whatever you wanted to do? Yeah, I, did, I didn't really have a plan. And, again, you know, I'm just so grateful that, that God always has a plan because I didn't really have a plan other than I was going to retire. And uh, I, was, I couldn't get promoted. Even though I'd been selected for Sergeant Major, there, there weren't any slots. And uh, a couple of us NCOs that always we always complained about a log jam at the top, and we promised each other we wouldn't be the log jam. Mm. So I could have I could have sat around for a couple more years and and gotten promoted, but I was also holding up four or five people behind me from being promoted. So I just made a decision to go ahead and retire and I moved out and I was, I was a job fair in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And I'll, I'll never forget Suzanne. I'd gone around and I had back in those days, we still had paper resumes and I'd handed out my resumes and I had one resume left and I walked by this woman. And I looked, you know, they had their little placards and I'd read her signboards and I wasn't interested. I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy what she was selling. So I was leaving and she, and she called me, she, she called me out and I, I went back to her and she told me, I'm like, look, ma'am, I don't want to deploy right now. I said, that's why I left. I got wife, kids. And she said, well, let me have your resume. We have some potential opportunities coming up. And uh, she, she basically twisted my arm and I gave her my last resume. And I, and I told her that, and we actually, Suzanne, and I became really great friends, but uh they called me and offered me a job, and I went to work for RDR doing embassy security. Uh, 
up northern Virginia, and I was stateside. Then we deployed a lot of people, uh, but they hired me as a trainer, and I, I went in and learned the equipment and the systems and, and trained. And then I, I moved up into operations, became the operations manager there before I left. I was there a little over six years. So you never deployed because you, you said going in, hey, I'm not, I'm not doing this for deployments. No, they uh, once I got in and I, I really enjoyed it and I, I, there were a couple of times I did want to go. But once they realized that I could do math and make PowerPoint slides and, and count and stuff like that, they, they kept me back. I, I, I became I just ran the op center. You, you had all your fingers and toes at this point. <laughs> Right, I did, and and I could keep track of everybody else's fingers and toes, and that's that was more important than me out there somewhere in the world, just doing a security thing. It sounds like you enjoyed that job. I did. It was it was an incredible job, an incredible experience with incredible people. Uh, I I really did enjoy it. And and how uh, long did you do that? I did it for almost seven years, a little over six years. And then uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher this. You, you ended up working for the Air Force and eventually uh, Space Force. Right, right. Well, yeah, it became Space Force after I left. Oh, that's see, I wish you were still there when it was Space Force. I do, too. I, just, just having an email that says space.com just sounds so much cooler than, you know, or space.mil, whatever it is. But uh, no, it was still the Air Force, but I did work space surveillance. Uh, I, I went to work for, at that time, it was ITT. Yeah. Then they spun off as Excellus, which was acquired by Harris, which merged with L3, become the L3 Harris industry that we know now. But uh, did work on the Air Force space surveillance system, which was incredibly cool i mean it's a series of nine radars that ran roughly along the 33rd parallel from east coast to west coast of the united states built back during the cold war was when it fully came in but it was actually built in the late 60s mm -hmm. there was a executive order from i want to say it was president eisenhower it was right after the russians put sputnik up in the air Mm. He issued an executive order that said, find it. He needed a system that could find and track that. And uh, Navy engineers built it. And within a year, we were tracking that first space object. And that was the first object put in a space catalog. And when I left there after 12 years, I, I couldn't begin to guess how many objects are in the space catalog right now. But every, every item in space has to be cataloged and accounted for. And it was really critical when we were doing manned space flights. Uh, you know, when we were flying shuttles up and down. And uh, even with the ISS up there, it's, it's critical that you know where everything is at every given moment. Yeah, I mean, there, there are hundreds of objects, if not more, right? Oh, there's tens of thousands of Really? Well, it's countless, but the, when you when you look at the ones that are of magnitude to do harm to, you know, one of our satellites or the space station or something like that, 
uh, tens of thousands. Wow. There's a huge debris field. I think it's, you can Google it, uh, Lockheed Martin or any just space debris field, and it'll show uh, the earth with the debris field going around it. And it's like a huge, there's a lot of trash up there. Man. And most of it's man-made? I would say all of it's man-made, yeah. 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 That's that's uh that's wild. I mean, so you're talking about Eisenhower, the technological advancements that were made back in the late 50s and, and through the 60s and into the 70s would blow most people's minds, right? Oh, it's amazing. Uh in the in the museum at Dahlgren, we had a slide rule that they used to calculate the position of objects in space. Uh, slide rule is five foot long. It's it's amazing, a humongous slide rule. And they, they did all this with slide rules and pencils and paper. Uh, the antenna that we had in Texas, the arguably the, the largest, most powerful antenna, VHF antenna in the world, the antenna field was two miles long and it was perfectly level from one end to the other end. Mm. Uh, I mean, they did it without lasers. I mean, we, you can't you can't even hang a picture in your house now without a laser level, right? These guys did it with just transits and string, man. It's it's amazing how far we've come. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, and of course now the di digital age, we seem to be advancing technologically at breakneck pace. I I can't keep track of most of it. No, no, I can't either. It's it's moving way too quick. All right, so Tim, you, you retired recently. What does it feel like to be retired now? Well, it feels pretty good. I'm I'm, I'm slowly settling into it. I retired one December, and uh, you know we were old right into the holidays, so it was not a routine or anything. So it, it just kind of felt like prolonged Christmas. But now that I'm about halfway through January, I'm, I'm I don't have to go back to work, and uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty nice. Uh, I was actually, my brother-in-law retired. He retired the same time I did. And so he's actually doing these TED Talks. So he turned me on to a TED Talk about the four phases of retirement. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still in phase one, which is vacation. <laughs> I'm just going to protracted vacation right now. Yeah, I, I would have guessed phase one is vacation. What's phase two? Depression. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, don't, phase don't, two. Don't tell me three. Don't tell me four. And I'm hoping phase two doesn't last very long for you. No, no, I don't think it's going to last long. Uh, phase three is when you start exploring activities and and stuff that you want to do with your life. Uh, then phase four is when you're actually what he calls move into full retirement to where you're able to enjoy and and give back and just have this incredible retirement experience. But uh, a lot of people get stuck in phase two. Yeah. Uh, and then, and some people just stay there. Yeah. We're, we're going to, I want to ask you about your family here uh, as we close out, but uh, having Cindy around for your retirement, I imagine there's no way you're going to get stuck in phase two. <laughs> I don't think she'll let me. Not at all, man. She's going to keep going. I'm going to I'm going to ask you a really odd question, Tim. 
Um, but it's meant to be a little more revealing about who you are as a person. All right, so you've got your own talk show one day or night only. You've got an hour, hour and a half. You get to invite three guests. You get to invite a male guest, a female guest, and a musical act. Uh, your guests can be alive or dead, right? The magic of this one show is if you want to have talk to somebody who's already passed, you can bring them back for your, your show. Um, they, you can try to entertain. You can be thought-provoking. You can be fun. You can be whatever you want it to be. Who are your three guests? <laughs> uh, yeah, you could you could have given me that on the read ahead. No, there's no um, way. It's more fun uh, surprising you with it. Right. Well, I'd like to sit down with Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, and I, I think he would he would be the person I'd want to sit down with. He was he was this wonderful combination of being wise, uh, very very likable, had a good sense of humor, and uh, understood a lot of things that I I think most people couldn't comprehend. Right, and he had he knew how to appeal to people. He he knew what was important. Uh, he had this manner about him that, yeah, I, I don't know how to describe him. I I really wish I'd have gotten to meet him. When my time, I, I got to vote for him. I got to experience the, the generosity of his, terms as president. Uh, we saw a tremendous change in how our country moved when President Reagan came in. Uh, certainly being in the Navy and in the fleet, I, I knew what it was like to be at sea under the Carter administration, opposed to when President Reagan took over and, and how we conducted ourselves and how we were able to move about the world in a better way. So definitely President Reagan as a male guest. Um, we move to a female guest, and you, you can do you can do musical act next if you want to. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to sit down with Jethro Tull. <laughs> so wait a minute, he's gonna he's gonna you're gonna interview him and you're gonna uh, let him play, right? Oh yeah, yeah, he has to play as part of the interview. <laughs> why why Jethro Tull? I don't know, man. I just I, I, I like his story. I, I like his music. I, I like his ability to to tell a story as opposed to just singing a song um, to to create almost. Uh, I don't know. It, it creates almost like his own little biosphere when you're when you're listening to Jethro Tull. Yeah, and, and so you're, the band is Jethro Tull, and you're talking about Ian Anderson, the person. Ian right? Anderson, right. Yeah. So does that count as two? No, or? no, no that, that, you're good. That, that counts as a musical group uh, or musical act. A, a lot of my military uh, guests have a tough time coming up with a female guest for whatever reason. Uh, it could be a family member, too. Well, I was, I was going to say, I, I just love to sit down with my grandmother. Um she passed actually when I was in the Navy and I, I was, I was able to get home on leave for her funeral, but I never got to sit down and talk with her as an adult. 
I was I was always a kid and, and she was grandma, but uh, she lived an amazing life. Uh, she she was born in 1898. Mm. I mean, she rode a mule to school. Wow. Uh, but she had 13 kids, 11 of which survived. Uh, during World War II, my grandfather and five uncles were serving at the same time. Mm. Uh, my grandfather was actually, he was a World War I veteran. He had been a corporal in World War I. Uh, then when Pearl Harbor happened, he tried to join up, and they, they said he was too old. But uh, he was a surveyor, so we actually ended up at Pearl Harbor with the Army Corps of Engineers doing the rebuild. And then I had two uncles that were in the Marine Corps, one of which was shot on day three of Iwo. But uh, he, he, he survived, and he actually got to link up with his dad at Pearl Harbor. It was wow. amazing, you know. Then I had two uncles that were Army, and then one uncle that was Navy. And uh, my dad was the littlest out of all those. He was a baby, and uh, he was too young to go. So he actually did his time in the fleet off the coast of Korea. Yeah. So it's a, lot, you know, a, lot of, a lot of service from your family. Yeah. And just the fact that grandmother can navigate all that. And I remember as a kid, I mean, she made a tremendous impact because holidays, it would be like everybody was home, you know, all 11 kids and a hundred cousins. And she was a matriarch and she went from, riding a mule to getting a driver's license later in her life. Uh, she saw a microwave oven, man. You know? Yes. So, sounds like she was a force. She was. And I, I, I really wish I could just sit down and speak to her like we're talking right now and ask her about her life and growing up in backwoods, Appalachia. And, uh, yeah, she was an incredible woman. Yeah, the story she could tell, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, tell Plus, me. I mean, I have my hands full. With... Now, I was just gonna say I had my hands full with two Lily boys. I don't know how she wrangled six of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you because you know what it's like to be a Lily boy. That's right. <laughs> All right. So, uh, tell me about your family, uh, your your wife Cindy, your boys, and your grandkids. Uh, I'm blessed with an incredible family. Uh, Obviously, my, my sons, I've got one that's down in, lives in Mechanicsville. And he's beautiful wife, Beverly, Craig and Bev. They've got Harper and uh, Wade, Wade Timothy, no less. Nice. We call him our super baby. He is almost four, but he's going on like 14. He has no fear, no nothing. He's incredible. And, uh, they're, they're really awesome, and it's it's so good to have them so close to, to, to us that we get to see them often and uh, spend a lot of time with the kids. And uh, my younger son, who actually, he deployed to Iraq. When, you were his commander, believe it or not. Oh, uh, in 3rd Battalion. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. 
Yeah, that's that's kind of cool how that came full circle. You and Sergeant Major Ferris, I think, got bumped into you at the deployment day. Yeah, in Franksburg, right? Right. Yeah, it's a crazy small world, Tim. Crazy. I'll tell you. But uh, Scott married a, a beautiful girl out in King George County, and they live out in the country and have two fantastic sons, Mason and Hunter. And uh, both the boys are doing good. Girls are doing good. I mean, we've been blessed. And uh, Cindy is just Cindy. She's awesome. And uh, she holds us all together and keeps us going, moving in the right direction. Yeah, I I, uh, I have to ask you about your granddaughter. How long had it been since there had been a girl born in the family? Well, I'm doing math. It's over 50 years. But uh, my baby sister just turned 60. Harper, six, 54 years. Wow. That's how long I've been on earth, Tim. I know. My mom time. had, uh, my mom had, well, mom had one son, me, and, uh, but then she had nine grandsons. <laughs> <laughs> and she, I, I thank God that she was able to meet Harper and see that great granddaughter before she passed there yeah. a couple of years ago. But, uh, yeah, that's a long time. Done nothing but boys. And now Harper's, Harper's, Harper's got maybe, a lot of pressure or no pressure on her. And I, I imagine she is, uh, she gets a lot of attention. I'm guessing she does, but she, she demands a lot of attention, <laughs> but she, no, but I'm, I'm not saying that not because she's demanding or, or in any way, but she's tough. And, and all the, all the kids are, they stand out in the crowd. And I'm not just saying that as grandpa, I've heard it from other people too. Yeah, yeah no, I get she, she, She's definitely a little bit above. So what, what are their ages again? Six, four, and, and what about the boys in King George? Uh, well, both of the, the boys are close together. Wade actually doesn't turn four. Harper's little brother. Harper's six. Mason turned four in December. Wade will turn four in March. And uh, Hunter turned two in December. It's a lot of fun when you're with them all, right? Oh, yeah. It's incredible. And uh, Harper's got to be the boss because she's the queen. But uh, then we're just we're just her servants, man. <laughs> they're, they're worth jobs. Yeah, there is. But, uh, that's a, it's a lot of fun. All right. So, T Tim, you're in phase one of retirement. How quickly do you think you move to phase four? Or you're not worried about it because phase one's vacation. Why would you think about that? <sighs> I, I'm not uh, – I'm giving it a couple of years. Okay. Yeah, I want to I do some hiking. I'm, I'm section hiking the Appalachian Trail. So I'm actually looking for about three or four good days here, maybe next week to go out for a couple nights. But uh, I don't see myself slipping into phase two. Yeah. Cindy will be the one to catch it if I do, but I, I do. I'm, I didn't realize how how routine driven I was, which which garners a bunch of laughter. You know, after you spend as much time as I have basically in service, because even even after I retired, I mean, I was working for government agencies doing government stuff. But uh, I think once I get in a rhythm and get a, a decent routine going. 
I'm thinking two years. All Maybe right, just right a year. I, I imagine your phase two will last 10 minutes and Cindy will pick up on it at minute four. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it won't last long. But uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kicking around some ideas. We we really don't know. We It's something that Cindy and I are approaching as a couple. Uh, we, we we talk about our fourth quarter because we we know we're in the fourth quarter of our life. So we, we don't know what God has planned for us. But we, what we do know is we're, we're going to be available and we're going to be receptive. So whether it's taking care of grandkids or, or doing mission work somewhere or, or whatever, uh, we're, we're just going to be available and receptive and just try to spend our fourth quarter in a positive way and maybe impact some other lives. Yeah, that, that's uh, two good ways to be, and I imagine um, you will have a very fulfilling fourth quarter. We're looking forward to it, man. We, we are so excited. Well, Tim, I, this podcast uh, is the reason we reconnected, uh, and so I'm happy I'm still doing this. Uh, I, I would like to think that I would have tried to reconnect with you on my own, but when I thought about Having guests on the podcast, I thought about guys like you and, and Don Willis and Sammy Heron, uh, Carl Holcomb, uh, the list goes on and on. And in fact, I, I don't know what it is about me, but I I have I have an affinity for some of the officers I serve with, but I really have an affinity for uh, NCOs, especially the AGR guys. And, well, and you, we, you were definitely one of them. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. I, you, were, you were my favorite lieutenant. I, I, I knew enough to to, uh, to let you do your thing. <laughs> That's that, and that is so true. I mean, uh, but we also support each other, and uh, you, you were definitely the, my favorite lieutenant. I, I can say that even with a grin on my face, but it, it's truthful. It is from the heart. And well, I, I, think, I think of you often. There's believe it or not, there's there's often something will pop up, and I'll I'll, I'll think of you. Well, you and I uh, appreciated hard training. Uh, we enjoyed each other's company and uh, we had a lot of respect for each other. And that's, it's hard to beat uh, those in combination. Yeah. No, it was, it was good times for sure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.